It's completely muted. How about now? That is much better. Perfect. Alright, so I want to welcome all the new people that joined us. I know that Andrea is here. She's my friend. She's been with us for two weeks now. I know Jared. I've seen his name into the meme group. I'm the one that actually invited people from the meme group. So welcome to everyone. Hey, Roger, uh, just to prove it's you, we need a voice stamp. Uh, if you could say Deleuze twice in a row, thank you. Deleuze, Deleuze. Thank you, Deleuze, Deleuze, Deleuze. Thank you, good. We have a, yes, the computer's confirmed that is Roger. Good, I'm glad. Um, so we will start uh, again, as Roger was saying, thank all of you new people for joining us uh, for our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective, and we've now been going uh, well, as long as quarantine has been up, which uh, when we first started this, we thought it would be a month and it would be kind of like an adult summer vacation and we would do this for a few weeks. And then as we got into month two and three, this has not been that. So uh, thank you, though, for joining us as we've continued. Uh, our goal here is very simple. Uh, today we are going to be going over 4.3. Uh, psychoanalysis and capitalism. Uh, psychoanalysis and capitalism? Yes, psychoanalysis and capitalism. It is such a long section. Uh, amazingly long. There's a lot of things to go over inside of it. Uh, do not hesitate to ask uh, what you consider to be stupid questions. Do not hesitate to ask things you think that the book may have already covered or we've covered. If you have questions, it means we haven't covered it well enough or that it's worth us discussing. So please... Uh, for sure. Uh, ask anything inside of the chat. We have our AO discussion chat live going. Uh, you also are free to unmute yourself kind of at any time or request that we do the same. Uh, I'm going to kick it off, though, because I posted a handful of questions I wanted to get a handful of opinions on or thoughts, because there's a few things in here I want to make sure I fully grasp before I start asking questions that uh, may be fruit of the idiot seed if I if I don't uh, make sure that I understand what we're talking about. So we'll start with the first one. Uh, for me, the, the concepts of the molecular and the molar inside of this section are incredibly important, and they obviously continue to be in the rest of the book. Uh, I wanted, if before I give my thoughts or opinions, if someone would like to take a crack, or a couple people, at trying to define what the molar and molecular are, how we can talk about them differently and quantify them differently. So that way we can have that as sort of a larger discussion. Uh, let's just say that those terms are not uh, issued from a Nigelian dialectic of a binary. So they're not opposed into some form of binary tension, but they, they, they are segments that are actually can be overlapping and um, uh, complementary or opposing. You know, they can be many things at once because they are multiple, like the rest of it. Someone uh, say a comment to me that uh, it's not so much to think of two separate things, but to think of descriptors of uh, sort of one cohesive sort of reality, a material reality where the molecular is the small elements of it. The molar is the meta view of those molecular elements. To piggyback that, um, it kind of depends what your context is, too, because like I went back through like um, chapter four before this and like so in four point, um, I think toward the end of four point one, the beginning of four point to talk about 
Um, and yes, this is in reference to those diagrams at the end of 4.1. They talk about how, like, in terms of the socius, there's the paranoiac aggregates, which is going into the, um, the molar, right? And then there's, like, the molecular sort of microphysics. But they also talk about how relative the body without organs, which is going to be, like, the tangent, uh, the tangent or the, the limit at, um, for the socius there's going to be on kind of two sides of that kind of a different molar molecular as from, from what I can tell where like the, the body without organs at the microphysics level seems to kind of be a molarity. Whereas the, on the other side of that, there's a, I think they call it like a sub microphysics, which is the more schizophrenic or like molecular level. So the, the point I'm trying to make is it also depends on depends on the uh, the context because like Roger's saying well, then then I'll give you a sp very specific one uh, there's a sentence on page 306 uh, for a structural unity is imposed on the desiring machines that joins them together in a molar aggregate the partial objects are referred to a totality that can appear only as that which the partial objects lack and as that which is lacking unto itself while being lacked lacking in them which is just I mean, it's terrible writing. I get what they're trying to I get that it's difficult to have these conversations. But specifically, that conversation around structural unities imposed on desiring machines, desiring machines being molecular, that joins them together in a molar aggregate. That part where it's the structural unity, I think, is where I'm having issues. Because uh, so if we talk about the moleculars being the singular pieces, the desiring machines, uh, me individually at a molecular, or my desires is that when they're joined together in a structural unity at a molar aggregate, that implies heavily uh, that there is a deeper structure rather than an abstraction at a material level. And that's my brain is having trouble sort of parsing that because the, again, this entire thing in, intentionally uh, is supposed to be about a material psychiatry. But if we're talking about things that have a structural unity, they have that. But if we're talking about abstractions, which molar investments tend to be, we're not talking about materiality. And my brain is having an issue making that leap. Or maybe I'm completely misinformed. This is why I said poison tree. I don't want to like start with something that's really stupid, but I'm kind of just going to do that. Alyosha? But I don't I don't see it personally as <clears throat> I mean when they're talking about structure, like this all just comes back to the body without organs, doesn't it? Because it goes on to talk about they say in the next page, such as the structural operation, it distributes lack in the molar aggregate and the limit of desiring production. They kind of go on to, to make these descriptions that it's essentially talking about the body without organs. Like the it's not that the molecular level or the desire machines have a structure in the way we think of them. They're talking about a structure being imposed on it. So there's something that you know, it's like the the surface of the body without organs is you know the serabat sur thing that we talked about. Like it's uh, falling back upon. It's it's bringing all these connections onto itself, and then cutting off different connections and creating this creating the surface through anti-production. And then that is the structure. That's like the point at which it's you start to talk about molar. I know they usually talk about statistical, uh, like they talk about the crowd in this chapter and other things they identify as molar. But to me, that's just that's just an extension of the subject. Like once you start talking about the subject, I, I think you're already talking about molar because you're talking about social investments and stuff. That's how I see it. Yes, be yeah, because we presuppose that uh, because the, the structure makes it that we presuppose um, 
not a totality, but like a form in the subject. And they, this, this definition also um, makes elements that are not there come into play. You know, what is a subject? But at the same time, when you ask this question is what is not a subject? So you, you, you inscribe it and you, you make a structure out of it into another structure. And once that once that structure that let's let's call it a superstructure the the molar aggregate once that is in place uh, it becomes effectively shaping the uh, hmm, to resay uh, the larger molar structures then become almost deterministic for the molecular and actually go on to sort of force the the molecular the desiring machines to operate in very specific orders in service of that larger molar aggregate. I think partially they, they do say a thing in this chapter, which I think is good where they talk about, I wish I could find the reference where they say that the desiring machines, they never like stop doing what they're doing. They're always rumbling beneath the surface, but there's something that something's overlaid on top of them that is constantly having to reappropriate that production and send it in different directions, you know? So I, I'm wondering if we should call it because like they give the example of the Freud thing where they're like for Freud, it really is that Schreber is Traber's father is sort of instructing the machines, whereas it, it's for them in schizoanalysis, it's the machines that are instructing, if you even want to use that word, uh, Schreber. And that's even as all these molar aggregates clearly are being formed and made, you know? I think, <clears throat> I think it's two moments as well. The structure being a static moment and the molecular um, or, or life, you know, is something that is being processual. So the structure is um, one side of this equation that is uh, not dynamic. It's something that, you know, we can identify as the organization in a snapshot. But the process, you know, makes it that into, if we temporalize what we're perceiving or what we're seeing or what we're analyzing, uh, we always... Uh, perceive this movement instead of the static element, which is, you know, what we can consider to be the structure. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's like, it's, it's really, we need to see it in two moments, process versus static. So I, I would then ask, uh, Oedipus itself would be a molar investment. Yes, but in, to a representation would be a structure. Of, uh, right, and that structure decide. then, that structure then places itself, uh, or in, tries to place itself uh, pre-creation of the subject, uh, or at least tells us that. So therefore, it creates and modifies how those flows operate, uh, sort of uh, in in that unconscious. It kind of helps me here too to remember that, like with the molar, in reference to like paranoiac investments, right, where structure. So one of the things that structure can do is it can create its exclusivity, right? It's a way of starting to cut off potential connections. And uh, I don't want to say triangulate, but at least kind of enclose things, right? So like with Oedipus, I think that's kind of what Oedipus does, where they talk about like um, generation and reproduction. Oedipus has a way of sort of contributing, um, of, sort of, sort of being utilized within this paranoiac investment within the molar aggregates um, as a way of basically like producing them or reproducing them. So uh, I want to read what Alyosha wrote uh, to quote him. I think importantly, the molar cannot truly direct the molecular. It can overlay it like a large net and try to direct the flows and it is often successful, but the net is filled with holes and it's impossible for things not to escape. I like that. For me, I go back to their their use of the body without organs and how they talk about 
debt uh, a lot in in the early sections and how debt is laid out in the previous two socius, uh, the primitive and the despot. But they go over this term where they say it's carved or inscribed on the body without organs. The reference there is specifically to the very old uh, idea of scarification and scarring and creating debts literally inside of the body so that way you're always owed. Uh, I would think that what they're talking about there is the it's not so much that the body without organs, the, the molar directs, but that this debt that is written on the body without organs, this, this implication essentially becomes something that uh, does shape uh, and, and very much controls the flows of those uh, desiring machines as things sort of go. It feels like that's what they're trying to say with that mm -hmm. sort of allegory. And uh, if I can put some context around it, you know, we're in the context of Althusser and all the Marxist uh, analysis at the time in France, you know, and even like Foucault would like, you know, still use structure at times. And um, so in, in their text, in, in his text, there's a, how do we recognize structuralism talks about, you know, the idea of the structure, but also goes to um, uh Ferdinand de Saussure and talks about systems also. So like for them, it's like a, a way to describe the like the meta, um, the metastatic elements, you know, of the. Uh, but so 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 it's like a, I think it's a polymorphic um, term. So it's it's kind of difficult to actually pinpoint what they're trying to say about it because you know they they use it in a way as still referring to structuralism criticizing it but also choosing to use it well they very particularly use the idea of the two poles of paranoia and schizophrenia uh, alongside the molar and molecular respectively and i think that also uh, sort of to expand on my original question uh, that usage uh, the way that they're talking about it throughout is uh, the idea of the paranoiac, which one of the sort of staple things in psychoanalysis for paranoiac is the uh, demand or belief that they kind of have a total understanding of things. And one of the parts of a paranoiac's mind is that they're able to completely assimilate any new stuff as part of that grand narrative. Uh, I believe I am Christ and I know all. And the guy down the hall, oh, I'm, you, have you met him? He also believes he's Christ. Yes, but he's obviously insane, is kind of the old uh, uh, joke. But that, that kind of mentality comes into molar formations where I have my grand narrative uh, that leans towards the paranoiac, and that grand narrative can pull in any information that happens to be sort of even not aligned with it. That's part of the nature of paranoia. Obviously, the other direction is the schizophrenic who doesn't link things almost at all uh, and actually breaks things down to very, very basic levels. And that sort of schizophrenic side of things at the molecular level is the opposing side. Uh, so to add to that with another question, because I'm just going to keep asking them, uh, when we talk about the body without organs as part of that uh, paranoiac machine, that structure, that superstructure, that meta, that molar narrative, uh, where is the line between the two? Because they talk a great deal about one transforming or being a part of the other, and obviously there's some level of fuzziness to it, but where in my desiring machines is something more of a, I, I don't want to use the word pure, but I think I have to, where does my desiring machines 
uh, end and my paranoiac structure begin? Or is there no answer to that? If you want to look at the, uh, also like not, not to divert and go back, but like if you want to look at the chat, uh, they refer structure to Lakin's work. So, you know, could help us out. But Brooks, I'm not saying I, I have a clear answer here, but I wonder if this is the kind of thing of like, it's almost like the Charlie Chaplin thing that we were talking about, like at the end on 318, when they say uh, it will not be necessary to go looking for the alibi of an accident. Charles Chaplin did not dwell on this. He went quickly as usual. He traced the finished design. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that they're like homologous methods or anything, but I, I always think of like genealogy when they're talking like this, that it's not really something where we can kind of like go back to the source and say, oh, this is a pure design machine and, and this isn't we can kind of talk more about, uh, I guess, descriptively about, it's like, from what I understand, what the way they're describing schizoanalysis, it's almost like you have to look at what appear to be base representations and supposedly base desires and stuff and see, trying to peel back what's beneath them. But it's always going to be a kind of retroactive process, I think. That makes sense. It's, uh, I think I even made that comment during our readings. It's the old Hegelian line that uh, change has only happened once you've realized it's happened. And there's no way to kind of go like, oh, things are changing right now. It's not really how it works. Uh, because of the way we see time and space and all of that. All right, interesting. Uh, oh, to read Bo. Uh, that's a really good passage from Holland. Uh, the distinction between molar and molecular investments does not correspond at all to the division between individual and society. Molar and molecular instances coexist on the body without organs, and indeed they are almost always very closely imbricated. Oh, well, that actually is pretty much a direct answer to my question. Thank you, Bo. <laughs> Jack, were you going to say something? Yeah, I think we will find some of these answers in more detail. It's going to be... Uh, chapter four, section one, where they talk about, for instance, the uh, the body with organs as the limit of the socius and the way this is like, because I think that's what they're trying to illustrate with the graphs at the end. But um, I think that's where at least some of the answers to those questions will be. I don't know if we'll get to it as well in this uh, review, but I wonder if some of this might be connected to their discussion of the, they call in English, they're calling it objectities, objectite, I guess you would say in French. And that, I guess it goes much more into the realm of like, what is representation trying to do? What is psychoanalysis doing? But they spend a lot of time talking about the difference between objective and symbolic representation and how these things get sort of like appropriated by these different thought systems. I don't want to, yeah, like I don't want to divert anything, but I found that probably the more difficult part of the chapter on rereading. And I don't know if it might help in terms of like, if we're looking at it, okay, what's the difference between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis as they present it? That's going to have all the implications for the molar and the molecular and stuff we're discussing. This passage may be of interest. In a word, the real difference is not between the living and the machine. So this is after they they talk about like vitalism and um, kind of machine and structure. In a word, the real difference is not between the living and the machine, vitalism and mechanism, but between two states of the machine that are two states of the living as well. The machine taken in structural unity, the living taken in specific and even personal unity are mass phenomena or molar aggregates. 
For this reason, each points to the extrinsic existence of the other. And even if they are differentiated and mutually opposed, it is merely as two paths in the same statistical direction. When the other more profound or intrinsic direction of multiplicities, there is interpenetration, direct communication between the molecular phenomena and the singularities of the living, that is to say, between the small machines scattered in every machine and the small formations dispersed in every organism. And that's uh, 285 to 286. Well, I, I, I keep going back to this idea of, des of desiring machines versus social machines as uh, I play too many fucking video games. Is uh, Video games often have what's called a, a, a meta. Uh, so let's take uh, Dota, which is my poison of choice it's a lot of games have this from warhammer and dungeons and dragons and back in the day all the way through to dota league of legends overwatch whatever uh the meta is a reference to the way the game needs to be played in the most optimal way so dota for example has 105 different heroes 200 items uh, each hero has four abilities there's an infinitely complex series of interplay there uh, but the meta, because we know how these games are played, we know how people do it, uh, any choice you make as part of that meta, it kind of needs to match with how is best meant to be played. So there's a kind of an understanding at a social level that this meta game emerges where there are some heroes who are meant to be played in certain places, in certain ways, with certain items. And going outside of that, breaking that meta is... Uh, dangerous uh, socially people will get really really fucking mad at you while you play uh so the 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 idea of the meta and the social machines being kind of on that side of things well the sort of underlying how uh at any moment i can play the game being the desiring machines feels like a a, a decent enough worry and i'm not seeing why that doesn't work anyone want to try me on that explain to me why i'm wrong your non-meta uh, choices escape the uh, uh, escape the uh, molarity of the meta. <laughs> well, it's I think I think that works as a concept because what the meta does uh, inside any of these games is become stagnant just by nature. Uh, people play the same five heroes on each team with the same set of items, but there are players who get deeply creative with how to play and suddenly you see something completely break the meta. Someone figures out some weird item combination on some hero and they come in and suddenly they've got this ridiculous way to completely destroy everyone. So the meta rearranges around that uh, as a thing. And, I, and you can watch this happen in games. There's uh, wonderful like online documentaries. I'll do a search after I, after I mute myself here in a second. I'll post a couple. But that feels like, because there's no demarcated line between how I play or what the meta is. That's not really how that works as a thing. One doesn't lead into the other. But my choices at a basic level and how well they do in sort of the large scale of things against everyone else's choices is what determines that meta and that social uh, so that kind of entry works for me as kind of trying to think through this in a way that I don't, I don't know, that we, I'm going to try to good examples in post, but I feel like that is a decent combination. And when they talk about on six, uh, machines with formative machines whose very misfirings are functional and whose functioning is indiscernible from their formation. Uh, I really like that 
sort of shorthand for how Brooks plays his game versus the meta, which I need to play my game as part of the meta, but that's just the way the game's played. And that feels also, I mean, that's not exactly a far leap for me to talk about capital. <laughs> like that's definitely not pushing that. But, but also just to remind us, I think that that does work. I think the one good reminder is the thing of like, they're not actually opposed in a binary sense of, uh, so I'm looking at page 302 and they say that uh, not that a simple parallelism should be drawn between capitalist social production and desire production or between the flows of money capital and the shit flows of desire. The relationship is much closer. Desiring machines are in social machines and nowhere else so that the conjunction of the decoded flows and the capitalist machine tends to liberate the free figures of a universal subjective libido. So I think like that that analogy can work as long as we're thinking of it in terms of it's not that the meta is like over and against the individual desiring machines, you know, like even in the meta, the, those desiring machines have been sort of captured and redirected into specific flows and ways of being. It's sort of just like, again, those two different uh, regimes of perception, I guess. No, I really like that. Yes, I, I think uh, the, the the big thing is that, and I, I wrote a little bit earlier about how kind of, I'm, it feels like they're raging against the molar. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think uh, as we start talking about this and how the meta affects things or how the meta uh, or the molar, whatever you want to call it, uh, makes me do what I'm going to do, I don't set out when I'm playing Dota or any of these games. I don't go, cool, what's the meta today? I'm just, it's just kind of how the game is played on a daily basis. And that's basically how the, all these things work. And there is some level of that. The difficulty becomes when you assume and you start playing where that meta or the molar is prescriptive of how your behavior is or how you need to be instead of allowing yourself to constantly have that, those moments of becoming, of brooksing or dotaing or whatever. Instead, you ascribe to this idea that this is the way to be. Last thing I'll say, crucially as well, is there is actually a section in this chapter where they say, they ask the question, what is the largest possible molar unit that could still be nomadic? So on the reverse side of things, that's another, I guess, reminder in the sense of like, you know, may maybe you could take it in a mystical direction. And that's like, I guess, another discussion of like, how could you have this experience of pure multiplicity? But they're definitely also, I don't think saying that, like, we can we can destroy the molar or something or live without that molar aspect. It's sort of like once it's that whole thing of bringing things to their auto critique, which they're always talking about bringing Oedipus to the point of auto critique, bringing uh, psychoanalysis to the point of auto critique, like, in order to to not allow these aggregates to be like prescriptive in the way that you're saying, we have to do all these operations and like do the what they call schizoanalysis. But that there is a, you know, I haven't read Thousand Plateaus, so some of your you folks, perhaps Roger, will know better. But it seems to me like they're trying to set up this possibility that being nomadic intersects with those like a, what is an inclusive disjunctive way of trying to break apart the. It's like the monopolies, like capitalist monopolies, almost of like of those aggregates. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're right. I can give another example of this. The, the city, for example. 
city and disability, like my favorite example. Uh, you know, the, the, the city is like a molar organization in that it has a molar type of mobility because it prescribes a certain use of the city. But at the same time, the way the people are using the, the city on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, there's digression. People are, you know, just becoming there using like, I don't know if you've seen that concept or this kind of analysis somewhere of like a desire path. People who are not taking the sidewalk, but they go through the grass and then you know, they create a little road there because, you know, it's more instinctive. So life finds its way, even though the structure has been taught into a previous moment. So with disability, there's the same thing. You know, disability is like a molecular uh, becoming in the city and the city offers um, certain molar uh, parameters uh, that allow or in, um, limit the mobility of people. So it's it's the movement of people with disabilities through the city that creates those possibilities, creates the critique also that actually addresses the molar collective functioning of the city and makes it move. So there's always this kind of like back and forth movement and how they are intertwine so i think you're completely right on the way you uh you approach this i really like this quote on 314 or 315 and i'm going to sneak it in uh they say regarding this sort of distinction between you know what's the smallest possible nomadic structure uh we are all little dogs. We need circuits and we need to be taken for walks. Even those best able to disconnect, to unplug themselves, enter into connections of desiring machines that reform little earths. Yeah, to expand on that, um, in some ways, I think this refers back to what they were critiquing in terms of formation and function. So like on 288, they write, um, it is only at the sub-microscopic level of desiring machines that there exists a functionalism machinic arrangements and engineering of desire. For it is only there that the functioning and formation, use and assembly, product and production merge. All molar functionalism is false, since the organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function, and the titan machines not assembled in the same way they are used. So right, like a lot of this, uh, I think what we're centered on is this, this exact um, point they're making earlier on where the molar isn't the primitive and the molar isn't um, the functional, which is, uh, I think, effectively what Roger and Alyosha are illustrating for us. So I guess then what I'm getting from what you just brought up, Jack, the... Um... Ooh, let me see if I can form this sentence. Uh, that the so uh, the the social uh, molar isn't formed in the same way it functions. Um, I'm getting that Deleuze and Guattari want to privilege the sort of the forming and the process, and I think they talk about that a lot at the at the end of this section. Uh, and I think one of the big critiques of psycho psychoanalysis that they go through in this section is that they flip it and they want to talk about representation and these sort of, you know, molar structures as being well. I don't like what I was saying. I, I take it back. But I do think they want to privilege function over um, result. They want they want to privilege that sort of functionalism, that process thing. Yeah, because there there's a form of vitalism into delusion thought, even though it's not like um, 
uh, said like that because you know it comes from Bergson. So what's more important, uh, the the ontology of life, you know, the 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 real processes that take form, produce life, produce possibilities, you know, or on the reverse, the symbolic aspect that we you know we we put as an umbrella over everything else, and you know gives us an explanation of those processes. I think they're going for the processes. I like that because it, it, it reminds me of what they were talking about with um, non-human sex because I wouldn't have made the connection to vitalism, but I do see it now that you bring it up. But it's a vitalism that isn't humanistic. It's about exactly. machines. Yes. machines. Yeah. Very cool stuff. This is kind of why I won't I won't bang on this drum for too long, but this is kind of why I went on my little rant the other night or last night. I don't I don't remember now. I had a, a Zizek fever dream where, you know, I personally am not really a fan, but uh I kind of accidentally happened on these specific texts, like all his introductions to like famous communists like Trotsky and Lenin and now. Hey, I'm gonna and, just let you know, that's everyone's reaction. Even yeah, the fan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh critical support which is like it's like the memes about prc so what are you critical about <laughs> just angry face but anyway um no so i was reading the introductions to these texts and i was struck by how because i don't tend to read them it was this it reminded me exactly of what was so frustrating about the reading these kinds of texts because on the one hand he has this incredibly lucid way of kind of cutting across pre-formed debates and distinctions about things or whatever but what i was complaining about in our chat was kind of exactly what I feel they're talking about here. Like there's that whole line where they talk about this, this obsession with the theater and almost like the factory where there's like a, a, a workman and a foreman and the, everything kind of laid out. And the more I was reading these introductions, it was like, I mean, it, it felt a bit like a parody, like a bit like the kind of things that Dillis and Guitar are talking about of like almost, it's like, we can't, you can't talk about Lenin without talking about the, you know, Lacan and Hegel and how, you know, what, how do we understand Lenin's desire and the, the true nature of his desire for revolution and all these things of like, you know, there's so many rich ways of thinking about analyzing these historical moments and these figures that far exceed, if you want to talk about non-human sex, that like far exceed any of these very strict understandings of desire or of lack or any of these things. And like, I, I was reading them and it was just this very strange process of being every other page being very interested and excited and then every you know the, the next page it just always resolved into like you know the, the, i think this idea about structural unity that is the thing i saw more than anything and everything that Zizek was discussing it was almost like it was almost religious in the sense of there is nothing that lenin mauer trotsky could say that would point to any kind of disunity or any kind of contradiction even their contradictions they're all like freudian slips or pointing towards a, an initial castration or phallus or something they they all make sense and that is the thing that was very frustrating about it is like you end up with this very weird hegelian world history kind of way of talking about things that it almost like commits the very error of what it's critiquing you know of like you, where are the people in this not even in a humanist sense of like where is like the the flux and the flow of the vibrancy of human desires and you know all, all the things that make it uh, you kind of get lost in these discussions of like, did Mao secretly actually, he secretly desired the perfect revolution the whole time? Like, I was very tired by the end of it. So sorry for the diversion, but I just, this chapter, rereading it now after having read those introductions felt so on point to me. 
All right. So do we move to another question, another point? Have we said enough on this? I would like to say I think we've covered a good amount, especially after we got to someone posted the uh, thank you, Roger, by the way, for the ovipositor. The uh, worst. I'm not one to kink shame, but there are some things where I just maybe do it. Um, but I do want to talk. Man. Oh, God, I just no. Um, uh, I, I actually have a question about the words you use there, and it's when they start using here and they use quite a bit. And it's the phrase non-human sex. Now, I would love to know if that is a proper translation, what the actual meaning of that is, because I know we were having a discussion, I think uh, we were talking a lot about, I think it was Julia and I, and I think uh, Alyosha as well, discussing kind of uh, Deleuze and Guattari's stances when it comes to when they say things about the homosexual, the heterosexual, the transsexual, and the non-human sex overall. Uh, when they say non-human, the implication in English is, uh, I, I, it, I, I want to say, uh, fucking aliens. I don't know how else to phrase it. No, like just... well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, non-human. It's not alien sex. It's uh, non-human sex as like the sex of flowers. You know, the orchid. You know, kind of being fucked by the wasp and like fucking another orchid. You know, it's, it's just like a. It's, it's, it's functioning reproduction. The, the, you know? the process of life. Deleuze, um, in the ABCs of Deleuze, which uh, I believe we've had linked a dozen times and we should probably do watching of it. He does, his first letter is A for animal and they talk about animals and he talks about um, how much he hates them, but then the things he likes about them is uh, how simple their lives are, how the territories they live in, they have three instincts. One of those is uh, reproduction. Is that what he's referring to? That sort of uh, innate, simple Simplistic sex. Um, yeah, but that's the that's the tick uh, the tick in its uh, three affects. Uh, but but the the non-human sex. I think that what we've um, what we've read last week was in sex in the imaginary. I think that that's what they refer to, right? Maybe somebody can point to this. I I I should go back into the text. I think there was a section in the last chapter, 4-2, where they talk about, like, should we say that a machine doesn't have a reproductive system just because it doesn't, like, fuck? You know? I, I think that's what non-human sex gestures at. Um, not just the reproduction of orchids and flowers, but also the way that machines reproduce themselves by connecting with other machines. Yeah, but the flowers are machines. <laughs> yeah, the flower is also a machine, and the orchid is a machine. <laughs> Everywhere it is machines. <laughs> they, they used to so, you know, it, but but that's the thing. It really simplifies uh, this understanding. If you understand that everything is a machine, there's processes that flux everywhere in materiality. Like it's 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 ontological understanding. So non-human sex is like sex at the the ontological level also. So okay, then uh, three ten. They say. Uh, the great other as the non-human sex gives way in representation to a signifier of the great other as an always missing term, the all too human sex, the phallus of molar castration. Um, that they seem to be using it as a noun rather than a thing that people do or as a drive. More about, I know that here they're talking about Lacan, but they use the phrase, like, again, within two paragraphs, they use the phrase in two significantly different ways. And that's why I think I'm having trouble 
wrapping my head around it. Can you tell me the page again so I can look at it? Uh, 310. Uh, they do it on 309 and 310. Uh, bottom of 309, at least at the bottom of the paragraph, and then middle of 310 uh, at the end of the paragraph there, actually, as well. Um, more or less continuing the same conversation oh, to okay. say... It is the entire reverse side of the structure that Lacan discovers with the little o object uh, as machine and the big o, uh, big o other as non-human sex. Uh, I don't, I, so I don't think that's the case in Lacanian, like I'm trying to find out what that relates to the non-human sex and Lacanian thought. I can't find it in my head and I spent a little bit of time. Let me see if I can take a crack at it. Um, I think what they're talking about is like, you know, uh, the way I'm visualizing it is like, say you have a room filled with objects and all the objects are sort of interconnected and they can reproduce each other and they can, you know, you connect machines to other machines and they can make more machines. And that's the non-human sex, right? That's the great other as non-human sex. All this subject in a room full of machines reproducing each other. And then Lacan is going to take that and start talking about the phallus as a sort of signifier that says there is no meaningful connection between these machines, or at least no objective meaningful connection. And, and that's where the great other becomes a signifier of black. Did, did that do a good job? I think if you look to the previous paragraph, it actually gives a good hint. Because in this section, they're kind of talking about how Lacan almost had it, according to them. Like, that he he gets intrinsically... Well, actually, the paragraph after and before... The paragraph after, they're, they're explaining, look, he really did get that the Oedipus is kind of... It's this imaginary thing that's overlaid on top of everything else. It's not an image... Uh, nothing but an image, a myth, and, and that kind of stuff. But in the paragraph before, they... So this is, I, I think this is really good because it kind of direct, uh, addresses this. They say, this reverse side is the real inorganization of the molecular elements. Partial objects that enter into indirect syntheses or interactions, since they are not partial, partial in the sense of extensive parts, but rather partial, partial, like the intensities under which a unit of matter always fills space in varying degrees, the eye, mouth, anus, as degrees of matter. Pure positive multiplicities where everything is possible without exclusiveness or negation, syntheses operating without a plan, where the connections are transverse, disjunctions included, conjunctions polyvocal, indifferent to their underlying support, since this matter serves them precisely as a support, receives no specificity from any structural person or unity, but appears as the body without organs that fills the space each time an intensity fills it. So I'm getting to the point that's important here. Signs of desire that compose a signifying chain, but are not themselves signifying and do not answer to the rules of a linguistic game of chess but instead to the lottery drawings that sometimes cause a word to be chosen, sometimes a design, sometimes a thing, et cetera, et cetera. And then this last bit is what I, I wanted to get to somewhere. They say, oh, here we go. Um, depending on one another, only by the order of the random drawings and holding together only by the absence of a link, non-localizable connections, having no other statutory condition than that of being dispersed elements of desire machines that are themselves dispersed. And in that section about the great other as non-human sex, like right before that, he's talking about how it always it all there's always a a way in which that absence of a link rather than a true absence meaning there's just there isn't a connection there it gets posited as an actual lack you know so they say uh there the absence of a tie necessarily appears as an absence and no longer as a positive force so it's not just things happen to be connecting in different ways and they're not mutually exclusive they're just doing things on their own 
their desire is necessarily referred to a missing term whose very essence is to be lacking. The signs of desire being non-signifying become signifying in representation only in terms of a signifier of absence or lack. The structure is formed and appears blah, blah, blah. So that's what I feel like is going on there. Um, is that is that that critique of like always having to insert the lack there and then referring it back to a despotic signifier, which whether you call it Oedipus or not, basically ends up being you know, the phallus or the, the lack of it, the castration, you know, complex. Yeah. Thank you. Very well said that, 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 that's where they want to say Lacan got the idea wrong, right? The signifying chain where the units aren't themselves signifying, uh, Lacan will take that and be like, well, there's a, that, that means there's a signifier that is, exists as the phallus that distributes lack, a lack of connection, a lack of meaning, uh, but instead, they're saying, no, you have it all wrong. The fact that these chains don't signify anything is a positive, productive force. It's not a, a lack of something. The issue with the anthropocentric style or reference of sex is that we're actually driving it to be something uh, in the molar that it necessarily isn't in the molecular. It's, it's creating debt, it's creating symbolization, it's creating issues, it's creating rifts, it's creating all these problems by having that, whereas the in, the non-human, the inhuman, whatever, sex, uh, is just pure drive. Or did I just say a bunch of words that make no sense? Well, let me see if I got you, because I think, I think, I think you, you're right, because what the losing guachery are saying is that Lacan's way of looking at things reveals the flip side, right? That they want to, it makes possible for their philosophy to exist on the other side of the positive, productive, asignifying chains. Uh, you have to have these asignifying chains that work according to this like weird phallus rule that Lacan comes up with in order for them to be like, okay, yeah, these signifying chains are connected by a lack of meaning but that's a productive like capacity within desiring machines to exploit. And that's a sort of molar and molecular thing happening again there too. Okay. All right. So, okay. Let's take, uh, let's take positions versus the global thing. You know, the real human sex would be, it's a matter of categories, you know, homosexual, heterosexual, whatever else sexual. You know, we have like this array of categories. This is already into the symbolic because people are just fucking. And then if if we go beyond this, this categorization, it's just sex. Sex as the same that machines would be having sex, the wasp and the flowers. And so that that's the difference. The human sex as something that is social uh, versus, you know, sex in general which is doesn't have to do with social categories following okay i'm gonna spend a little bit of time thinking about that but that that helps me a great deal thank you it might be wish uh, it might be worth pushing further into the following paragraph too where they get into three major planes of structuration but i as i'm reading that like they're overturning structure through like a uh, through how they're understanding the con where like um the, the little O gives ways to the machinic and the formative and the um, the productive in that manner. And instead of having the big other as sort of like the the thing that everything is coagulated around, especially in, like, say, an anthropocentric manner, which I think the big other kind of 
kind of postulates. Um, instead of having that as like the organizing center, instead you have desiring production and the three and the, and the way the syntheses are happening. And so that that basically collapses like the the structuration so that we can get to what's being produced, what's being formed, and the functionalisms that are actually happening. Run out of my major questions. Uh, I have things that I would like to discuss that I think could be fun, but I really would rather have anyone here who's having any challenges with this section or has further clarification or questions, please. Uh, now would be the time. How do we become a body without organs? <laughs> I mean, are you, were you really asking or are you just fucking around? Oh, but I mean, it's a rhetoric it's a rhetorical question, but at the same time, that's the question every you know, every student, every student a little bit revolutionary or reactionary will be reading into this, like trying to find a way to like, you know, become so much different from others and like move beyond the categories and move beyond the molar and like what what does it mean for us to be a body without organ? And I think it's a it's a rhetorical question, but I think at the same time it's legitimate. And I think a lot of people are asking themselves that. I mean, See, I, interesting. I would never ask that question. I don't think there's uh, any. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but I, but I, I don't even know if I would like whatever it may be. Uh, the the nature of a body without organs is to exist without desires and there's an ascetic nature to that that i think um i i i wonder and it's and i know we've done the analysis of our toe and and the entire play but there is a sardonic quality to that entire section of the play where it's not so much that he actually is asking to become that it's that he feels the pressures to become that uh, so I would. So almost... yeah. So so that's that's good. That's a really good first hint into answering this kind of question, because you know it links us to ethics. You know we're being produced produ products of processes instead of something that has control over our becoming. So it 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 actually taps into another form of understanding. You know because we have like this. This thought that you know we can become what, what whatever we we want we want to become revolutionaries you know but the revolution happens like you know through us through, like through an assemblage of many things so like you know to to say how do we become a body without organs it's like it's not how we become but like how can we set the preconditions of emergence of something something else so that you know like you you gave I think you give like a good int into moving out of the the classic understanding of the subject into something pre-individual and processual. Well, Nick and I were just talking about beforehand. The see for me how I and I've read this now a few times. I've read a bunch of writings on this, and I've read uh, prior to this a lot of sherry stuff on vegan capitalism and you know Lazzarato and all those guys. But for me, it's. Uh, the, the question is not so much that, it's uh, how do we make the molar uh, submissive to the molecular? Because right now, our desiring machines, as they get collected and put together, are ultimately in service of social machines. But how do we actually sort of invert that? So that way, our desiring machines are the ones that are actually empowered, are the ones somewhat in control, and moving sort of the social machines to a place where they're uh, sublimated underneath? That's for me, uh, I think, the, the question here.
which I don't have an answer to necessarily. I mean, I mean, they kind of. I, I'm wary of um, folks like our dear Roger who've read a thousand plateaus already and kind of jumping ahead when when what's not in this chapter. But they do say towards the end in three twenty one. I mean, they they kind of outline their initial program, which I imagine they're going to keep expanding on towards the end. But they say a true politics of psychiatry or anti-psychiatry would, would consist in the following praxis. One, undoing all the re-territorializations that transform madness into mental illness. Two, liberating the schizoid movement of deterritorialization in all flows in such a way that this characteristic can no longer qualify a particular residue as a flow of madness, but affects, as Roger said, just as well the flows of labor and Sorry, I'm reading that wrong, but affects just as well the flow of labor and desire. Anyway, they, this paragraph, they kind of go into it. I, I think it's good to go into this stuff. I'm, I'm actually interested in this conversation, but I wonder if we're also kind of jumping ahead a bit because there's so much in this chapter that they talk about. I, that, like, I, I, yeah. I'm not reading ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with you, I think. Uh, Roger, uh, I, I think we should try to keep it to what we're able to talk about at this point. Because uh, I think there is a larger discussion we're going to end up having after we finished all these books and we're starting to actually come up with what is the praxis that the Quarantine Collective ultimately wants to put in place. I think there's some discussion there. But at this point, I think a, a lot of this is really pushing towards the, the deterritorialization. And that's something that, again, as they've written, desiring machines are always doing on the edge of the body without organs. Always. That's the schizophrenic sort of telltale sign is deterritorialization. Uh, and then what happens is the other side of the pole, the paranoiac molar uh, begins re-territorializing immediately inside of larger narratives and stories that then supplant desiring machines and sort of yell at them and make them do things prior to even being formed. So that's the thing they've talked about so far, as far as I can tell. I mean, I will say I've really struggled with this in my own reading because like, I sometimes think about molecular molar and then molar representations. And part of the reason I think about it in that sense is like, if we let the molar fall away in such a way or such a sense that we're still not imposing like a structural unity where there isn't one, and we can kind of scale up the conversation and talk about social machines in a manner similar to how we're thinking about desiring machines. So right where like, we're still dealing with points of departure instead of arrival, as they say. I think that can actually be helpful but at that level, right, that's not the way we're used to talking about the molar, right? We're used to talking about what they, exactly what they say, aggregates, um, statistical tendencies and all that. But when we think about like, you know, if we take uh, just like social machines in that manner and we treat them in a way similar to desiring machines, I think in that sense, it's possible that um, a representation becomes less less necessary but that's just how i've been thinking about it i don't have i could be wrong to, you know because the other side is too right like it's not just the molar and molecular is it it's the it's the delirium fantasies Yes, hand disease, but the the delirium of the two investments and the two um, uh, like right between the paranoiac and the schizophrenic and the way that, just like you're saying with deterritorizing, and there's the 
the problem of um of um reactionary re-territorialization right where like that diagram where like it looks like desiring production can break through the body without organs into the schizophrenia deterritorializing or it can bounce right back into simulacra of representation right that that fundamental like those tensions those investments that that very question of like how to break through the uh, body without organs in that manner like that seems to get a more fundamentally the heart of like the matter i'm not sure if this is redirecting or not but i'm reminded of um what they talked about the process of schizoanalysis being where you're supposed to watch the desiring machines kind of i guess this sort of plays at the retroactive thing let me see if i find a page number here i have one uh 316 Psychoanalysis settles on the imaginary and structural representatives of re-territorialization, while schizoanalysis follows the machinic indices of deterritorialization. Uh, this comes right after the part where they were talking about, too, how even the best schizophrenic uh, disconnectors, uh, they talk about examples from Beckett, uh, still come back to little islands, little worlds of their own. So I'm not sure... If this gets at what you're talking about with the paranoiac and the schizophrenic investments, but I think there's something there where the process of schizoanalysis is following these lines of escape, these productions in their patients, instead of looking at the representation and trying to divine like what is being represented. Yeah, because ultimately, right, like it's not going to exist. Um in a vacuum, right? Like deterritorializing still requires something to be deterritorialized, right? There's still a territoriality. So when we talk about like the schizo stroll and ending up in the mother's bedroom, right? Or like the Chaplin movie where like there's something being deterritorialized there and that is the schizophrenic flow, right? But that's also, I think that at least gives a glance to the very delirium, right? Because the, at least as I'm thinking about that, that paranoiac represent, uh, not represent that paranoiac territoriality, like right, the idea of like just staying there and that that sort of conservation, right, with the um, the movement out of that or away from that or in in terms of just like a whole different territoriality of that very very place, that seems to be a lot of the tension here. Yeah, and it makes me wonder. So, is the intention? for them to sort of like a delusion guashery telling us to like watch where we break from these paranoiac these um erstats these 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 paranoiac machines these molar uh, aggregates are they telling us to watch for the lines of escape in order to sort of divine an intention you know into the machine that escapes the, like how much of this is supposed to be intentional is the process of schizoanalysis about divining intent or uh, behind these escapes and and if so if so what are we supposed to do with that that, that doesn't seem to work because it seems we're falling back on a sort of theater of representation i don't think it'd be intent it would just be back to the whole descriptor the function you know if you, if you can find if you can locate desiring machines or forms of being that 
allow for you know inclusive disjunction and nomadic behavior whatever that is it really doesn't matter what the intent is or why it exists you could kind of wonder about that i suppose but it would be to sort of that's the idea of the machine i guess is reproduce how do you create another machine that reproduces those effects Okay, that sort of sidesteps the idea of intention because uh, desiring machines are supposed to be functionalist, so their their form and their function are uh, aren't distinct. So intention can't really play into that. That makes sense. I think it's also it dep- like it, it. It depends though, because if the intent op- like points toward an horizon that is not the molar horizon, but creates a difference into you know into the whole process of differentiation uh, intent will play into this assemblage okay because you know like the the line of flight will be experiments into becoming other yeah that makes sense that's the that's the little circuit right so you 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 can point towards a horizon away from the sort of molar aggregates that are uh conservative or capitalist or psychoanalytical into the becoming other uh that that's their whole sort of ethics but you still end up there at a at a different kind of horizon a different kind of circuit uh, 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 uh hopefully a nomadic circuit but it's still a yeah. machine okay yeah but like the confusion there and then you know it's not into this text but um you know there's a whole geosophy of uh Deleuze thought like his whole politics is like a geosophy and and in the sense that it's like finding the movement of the earth like in the nietzschean sense and like following it instead of like submitting ourselves to the molar aggregates or you know the domination of uh, the ideas of man or like a normative uh, structure or system is to actually find processes that allow life to go in the sense that it wants to go so you know uh, life is you know there's no there's no intention to life but like life is just like evolving as 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 it evolves into its differentiation so it would be to allow a differentiation that is non-human and that would produce a non-human horizon that that would be you know the ideal kind of understanding letting letting affects uh, affects other thing without being restricted by some form of human control over them I like that a lot. That's kind of, uh, I think, reading Nietzsche, uh, reading this book after doing a little college education in Nietzsche, I think, makes me feel like I understand where Deleuze and Guattari are coming from, because they're obviously very influenced by the genealogy of morals and, and other works from Nietzsche. I was so you know it's it's so so sorry, I'm just gonna like add in a, a little thing. So you know, it it if we follow Deleuze and Guattari onto this, it's like it, it, it leads us outside of like the, the normative aspect of the left or the liberals, you know, like we're just elsewhere. And it's really difficult for to follow this line, you know, if you're on the left or you come from like an anti racist into fascist kind of background, you're you're still looking for normative elements. But there's there's none, you know, become a nomad. What does it mean to become a nomad? Like just just do whatever, you know? Like it's it, it's really it, it's to about like change our uh the way we see things and we see ourselves in the process also. So it's it's a little bit different from like the political categories and the political horizons that are on the field right now. I would I would even say though asking the question how do you become a nomad misses the point of what a nomad or schizoanalysis is. Like it's, hey, is there a way for you to tell me how to be the thing? And it's like, that's literally the paranoiac side of everything. 
Tell me how to be, please. Please tell me. Can you tell me? It's the opposing reality of everything we're going for here. So, you know, yeah. like like this, we're wrapping to the initial question. Because, you know, to ask this question, how do we become the body with our organs, or how we become a nomad, is actually not finding the correct key for the lock that we're trying to unlock. But I think that's also what I was going to say, is this is also why they identify it political project and why they say even uh it was in the same page we identified earlier um page 302 when they say that it follows that the link between psychoanalysis and capitalism is no less profound than that between political economy and capitalism their whole project is trying to say you know we, we if we want to think about starting points it you can't sort of think about like how do we convince people or how do we craft the perfect ideology it's sort of like i think uh, as roger was saying like it's a spatial idea and and insofar as intent does come into it i think from a, from an analytical or genealogical perspective we shouldn't be thinking about intent at all i think with desiring machines but insofar as it, we're talking about political projects it makes me think of uh lazarato actually and i can't remember which text but he he talks about you know things like the paris commune and and the different things that the workers movements have been able to do historically and that the point of you know, something like uh, a strike or something like, a, you know, the occupation of a space and in the commune isn't just to sort of create justice and to right a wrong or even to, you know, just a purely economic thing. It's about, it, you know, if we're going to point to any intent of like where you could where you could say, OK, this is something we want to do as, you know, uh, subjects engaged in this like political activity. It's this kind of thing of like. The point of what they were, were doing, you know, for what Lazzarato is saying, is like it's the ability to withdraw from these like, you know, everyday molar sort of structures and their investments and all, all of those things that creates a new space of possibility. And it's precisely that we don't know. Again, it also sounds very Bergsonian. It's like we don't the point of it is that we don't know where it goes, that it's precisely about opening up those spaces to allow for other things to happen within them. And, you know, unfortunately, they often get crushed, you know, very quickly. But uh, I think, yeah, I, I think, would, yeah, Go ahead. on this, I would say that you're right, because that's my position as, as well. So, like, maybe we're both wrong. But in my dissertation, that was uh, a huge point. And people were always telling me, where is the intent? Where is the subject? You know, like, because they wanted me to reproduce this kind of thinking into social sciences. And I was saying, I'm not interested into the intent. I want to see how things and people and bodies are being affected and how those bodies are reaffecting the city and its element you know and its dispositives uh, dispositive or its machines or its assemblage so like it's a it's it's to view the world as a, a world of affects instead of a world of uh, intent so that's that's really important because a world of intent it's naturalism you know it's like saying that we are exterior to nature and we can act on it and to talk of affects is to put us back into this nature and saying, you know, it's a whole process of like dancing and synergies and disjunctions, you know, it's, it's all that. So it's a really different way to understand things and political processes are this. So for people who have been rioting or protesting or doing any other thing, you know, you might have a little intent, but the intent never, never, uh, never survives the first punch, you know? So it's the, the moment the political process starts, uh, the intent just goes out of the window and then it becomes like war and it's strategies. Strategies and intents are two things.
I'm going to try to pull this back to just seeing, because we still have a bunch of people in here and not a ton of people have asked, are there actual questions about this section or do you guys care if we dive forward? Uh, I'm really wanting to do a review of this, but this, this section does just naturally lend itself to us running off and starting to try to figure out really what the project is here. And so I want to make sure before we start really diving into that, uh, I want to just make sure we come back because I, it is, it is a little bit of uh, us talking to ourselves about our own stuff rather than the text directly, which is in kind of the idea. But that's okay. So if anyone has questions on 4.3, now would be the time. Or very shortly here, it's going to be uh, uh, keep it to yourself. So you guys let me know. We'll give a few moments for anyone to ask a question. Please do so. I guess we're going to sort of dive forward. Um, I'll venture um, a quick response to it, or at least a, a comment on what Roger said. Um, with that, though, I think that's why. So I, I, I really like what you said, and I, I think you're right. And like, so if we if we're talking about these things in terms of evidence, like right now, so with ontology, with ethics, even, because I think in some of this we get we move, just like Foucault suggests in the beginning, there's a certain um, ethicality and, and a sense of um, the normative that comes with this approach. And I think in some ways, like our toes. Yeah, so our toes um, conception of by organs and to have done with the judgment of God, I think in a lot of ways kind of speaks to what you're talking about and does give at least some idea of um, this sense of becoming, right? So like in the sense that like, I, I at least as I read the, the, the final part of um, to have done with the, the judgment of God, part of what our toe is getting at is like, as long as organs, or if we say machines here, or the potential, or, or an ontology of productivity of functionality, as long as this is all tied up in diagrammatic prescriptions, where the ontology of things is apart from us, then we don't really have much of a, a chance of becoming much, do we? Because uh, our sense of being is kind of um, split, or rather, it's 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 all apart from us, right? It's even worse than transcendental in some sense. But um, I think this is where like the project does start to at least take a certain shape is if, if we're dealing with things in an imminent sense, if we're dealing with things and what they can do, what they can produce, like you're saying, even in terms of like a strategy and that. And if I think with that, if ethics is no longer um, about like normative indices, be kind of Foucaultian about it, or like it's uh, molar prescriptions and that. But we've got to start taking things um, as we're connecting with them and, and working that out with each other. And the, there's a certain sense in which like the things that are available to us are um, are taken for what we can do with them and what that will make us into. I think that at least points to um to at least a, a certain the point of departure for praxis itself in that way without risking a, a diagramming of it. I wholly agree. And I want to read a piece from Holland that I think uh, just kind of reaffirms that. Uh, on the one hand, 
to subvert molar investments and free subjects from the paranoid and or pious beliefs that keep them subjugated to the alienations of private property imposed by capitalist recording. And on the other hand, to discover and develop molecular investments that express and promote free form schizophrenia of desiring production released by market decoding. The aim, in short, is to release molecular desire from the constraints of molar representation. Again, I this this speaks to me as very much what this entire section is ultimately driving at, and they go so deep into the psychoanalysis of myth, of tragedy, dreams, fantasy, all the different uh, plays and theatrical events, and they 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 really really dive into it. But the idea that essentially. Um, our molecular desire is under the yoke of the molar representation, the molar representation being something deeply prescriptive and ultimately does this really fun thing uh, that uh, I, I think a lot of uh, psychoanalysis has been guilty of for a very long time, which is uh, blaming the result on the uh, blaming the initial thing on the result. So um, there's the old saying, and I've, I've done a bit, it's a story of a man who gets a dog as a puppy. Every day he beats that dog, ties it up, it's tied down. Uh, when the dog's two years old, the neighbors come to visit and they can't get near the dog because the dog is wild and angry and snaps at them. And the owner goes, fuck, it's a good thing I beat that thing every day. And it's this, this sort of switch where what you've done is you've actually created the problem that you believe you're solving by sort of proactively going for it. And they, early in this section, early in this chapter, they go over how Oedipal desires are actually things that we visit upon the child first. We, may, we have that perception that it starts with the kid, that my son is the one who wants to fuck his mom and kill his dad. And so that's why I, as a father, have my sort of response to that, when in reality, I'm the one visiting Oedipus upon my son. So that sort of mentality, I think, is is to me what everything is driving at here, that we need to release molecular desire and allow it to exist without having to worry about the constraints of the larger molar representations. Um, I have a question really quick, if that's okay. Please. Um, is that kind of related to the idea of hyperstition, like like a belief that, or an idea that almost kind of ends up retroactively creating itself? Yes. Well, so I, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but it, it ties in a lot to that. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about anything that Nick Land has written about. Me too. Um, <laughs> But I, I think, I mean, ev everyone can have good points regardless. I, I would even go back to one of my favorite poems, which is uh, the, the Road Less Traveled. Uh, it's a famous, famous poem, very Americanized, and something that people here really get angry about when you tell them that the entire thing is actually about making fun of people who believe that they've taken the path less traveled. The way the poem actually goes, if you read it, is that they're exactly the same. The paths no different. There's nothing at all to say that you took the path less traveled, except at the end of it, you will say, well, I took the road less traveled and that made all the difference. I stood out on my own. <laughs> and it's, it, he actually wrote it making fun of someone he knew who did this, who, uh, like, there's an entire story. This is not a joke. Like, the entire thing is the opposite of what people think. Uh, it's it's meant to make fun of people who believe that. And so I, I've 
always sort of looked at that as this, again, a molar investment that I need to exist on my own. I need to take the road less traveled. I need to do these things. This is the story I tell myself. And in retrospect, I'm able to make those things happen. Uh, but sure. To bring up Zizek, I know, shut up. Um, <laughs> his entire book on event is this. And there is two ways to read it. One is that event is a thing that uh, redefines reality around it, or it's an event that changes how you see the event itself by existing. Uh, one he names, and I know one Deleuze would probably agree with, is the idea of Kafka being this moment in literature that there was literature and then came Kafka. And now there's now there's literature before Kafka and after Kafka. But this is a prescriptive thing that exists only because that's how we're seeing it at this very moment. But because we're defining these things with these large molar investments, it's naturally influencing how our desiring machines and our sort of schizo side is producing because that's how we're invested. And so if you're after the fact telling yourself that these are the realities, uh, if you're a capitalist who says to yourself, well, it's obviously my brilliance that set up everything that I've done. It certainly wasn't luck and it certainly wasn't all my workers who got me here, but it was me, I am special. That will change and will begin to affect how your desiring machines work. And conversely, if you believe that you are a failure because you don't have money, because Santa Claus gives good boys presents and bad boys get nothing and you've gotten nothing, therefore you're obviously bad. This changes how your desiring machines work. The, the, the molar representations are naturally constraints on the molecular desires. And that's kind of what they've been saying with Oedipus, again, this whole time, that we want to pretend like well, this Oedipus thing isn't this insidious, awful shit. But in reality, what's happened is we've placed it pre-subject. And because of that, it's affecting our desire flows. We have desire flows that are outside of that, but it's it's this this process of, you know, sort of retroactively affecting stuff. And so the idea of hyperstition, again, from my understanding, and I've not read a ton of Nick Land for about a thousand fucking reasons, but the idea of hyperstition is this thing that is retroactively true because we want it to be effectively. And I, I think there's a lot of reality there. Um, if you watch uh, Trump supporters or libs, let's talk about libs too with the Russiagate shit. Everything, everything you see at that point, you are able to go, oh yeah, no, that fits my narrative. And you drag it in. Again, it's paranoiac. It's the nature of the paranoiac pole. This is one of yeah. the they talk about greatly. And yeah. I've been like uh, arguing with QAnon because I'm mostly like toying with them to actually like see like all the shit that would spit my way, and you know, a self uh, self-realizing prophecy. You know, like you know, they 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 give you like a hundred elements out there, and you know, if two are true or like seemingly true, like the whole thing holds. So you know, that's that that would be uh, because that's the way there's processes and then you know there's a representation that we cook, cookie cut over and but the is the precedence of the cookie cutting over the material that it cuts yeah and with that it's generative and reproductive right i, I can't speak too much for the nickland either but it's a way in which the representation because they talk about how it can like produce the unconscious in that manner or in another sense like it can produce connections between um between machines and in that way reproduce itself right so like the uh the, the oedipus can become 
Oedipus can seem to take place because there's a certain way in which connections are being pushed in that direction. And in that way, it seems to fit the representation and starts to reproduce itself, having mm -hmm. been generated. That's the trick, so, too, is it's yeah. generated. Yeah, it's generated, but like, you know, like uh, the Oedipus is into the symbolic level. So that's what they said into the chapter, symbols interacting with symbols. But the clinical um, aspect of the Oedipus is to actually pass those symbols into the real materiality of the body. So the subject actually believes in those categories and start acting in relation to them. So basically, Oedipus is not there. You know, but we will make it happen into a person's life, changing its its representation, changing the symbolic world in which you know it inscribes itself, and from there you can actually act on the materiality of the world by acting on the representation content. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So you know, on, on reverse, it's let's kill, <laughs> let, let's kill both our parents and see what happens. You know that that that's the reverse aspect of it. You know, like see like. Let's let's our desire run amok and like see what where it leads us. I did that after buying the goo record. <laughs> Don't follow Roger. It's gonna it sounds very Charles Manson esque. Yeah, Charles Manson never killed anyone, man. <laughs> no, but like it's a, uh, it's just it's it, we we try to normalize desire. We try to normalize the body and the way it, it enacts desire by importing representation and the symbolic content to it. But desire actually works on the reverse, you know. It's just something that erupts from like erupts from bodies and actually go through them at the same time. And um, so it's it's to see this tension between you know. Uh, the, the materiality of desire versus its symbolic aspect and how they play with or against one another. I mean, I do always think about when I think about things like this, like when people are like, how do you ever apply this stuff? And what does this even mean? I feel like it's just, you have, it's one of those, you have to see it to believe it kind of things. You know, if you've ever been in this space that feels like it's transcending, that's the wrong word, but you know, get, escaping some of these strictures and, tapping into something new it just is so it's like a religious experience frankly and i always think about like one of my uh you know for all of his foibles one of the people i always think about and look up to in this regard is fella kuti the nigerian singer and if you like look at i mean he just had a wild life really really complicated and he ended up clashing with the nigerian state i mean he did all kinds of things he, he declared his own house he declared his house a republic separate from the nigerian state you know he had all these very very interesting and complicated life but he had his club the shrine and whenever you read about the shrine it's like to me you know in retrospect looking back like what I, I see now what always drew me to the concept because the shrine was like literally a space of possibilities of becoming you know it, it like allowed for kinds of people to be around each other that never would have been around each other otherwise it's like very you know the, the idea of inclusive disjunctions and becoming and possibilities is just was completely latent in that kind of space and i you know yeah it's i think it's easy to kind of pick apart from like an authoritarian perspective because you know they can always posture and say well have you created a, an authoritarian state that's liquidated millions of people <laughs> inefficient anarchities but like if you're not of that mindset you know there's i think there's millions and millions of examples how those yeah, kinds of spaces can be opened up 
and you can take like something really basic like the Taz for example the temporary autonomous zone and you know there's been like writings of Akimbe and stuff and it's a form of like anarchism that is relating to Deleuze and in in those moments in those spaces I'm you know I'm not advocating for them because you know I, I'm, I'm really critical but at the same time it's like opening spaces of possibilities and those spaces of possibilities they allow differentiation and that's why they're important you know they're not realizing a political project per se but they just open to other possibilities and you see the texture of the world it like the it's like the the, the paint you know the the totalitarian paint of the world starts to crack when you start living in those spaces because you you you, you understand that everything could be different well, it interests me too because um, I agree with what you're saying, but it's also interesting in the sense that when we're talking about opening up the spaces, right? Like we're constantly confronted by that opportunity, aren't we? Like, at least as I think about it, since the way they're talking about desiring production with the, the these ontologies, the productivities, the functionalities, like these opportunities are constantly at hand. Yeah, and you know the um, the situation is back in the '60s. That's what they were saying, you know, and what they call like psychogeography and derive. I don't know what derive is in English though, but uh, what they 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 would like they would tell people like let's do an experiment into the street, like just let's just let's go let's go and like take take streets where wherever they lead us. So you see the city outside of a smaller organization because it has a smaller form of mobility to it. But if you start derivating you will end up like into other spaces that you're not supposed to be in and the city changes as you see it from those uh, those situations or those specific points so but that's the same for life that's the same for you know education sexuality mobility whatever else you know like if you try something different it will lead you elsewhere outside of codes you know or because we got to remember the, the caution against the other thing it can do, which is lead you back into the the simulacra of those repre- um, of those uh, other investments, right? Because that's, like, ident- that's identity politics, <laughs> well, among other things. But yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I suppose we could even say identity politics makes use of these tools, right? Like it's we think about it in terms of like machines and kind of like in that like. A sense of like technologies right like identity politics is the way that this is all put into motion and, and functions a certain way right that way we don't make an identity politics out of identity politics yeah yeah but like it's 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 uh you know uh when we're saying going back into the molar that's the thing identity politics is related to like real processes of like queering or you know differentiation but uh, identity politics works onto the categorization the representation of it all into reascribing it into the molar system you know it does not create different um, molecular differences the molecular differences are underneath that and um, so that that's the that's the that's the, the point of it, and that's the danger of identity politics because they actually lock down the processes and they try to like um, inscribe their, themselves into the molar, I think, you know. 
try to become prescriptive of non-normative behaviors, which is something exactly. that is really, um, and I, again, I don't want to be the guy who shits on identity politics. I have a very weirdly nuanced view, but I think at its basic level, you're talking about non-normative behaviors, trying to be prescriptive itself becomes dangerous to non-normative because the idea of, and I've been told I can't use the Q word uh, recently, so I'm going to try to not, but uh, the, the studies around homosexuality and queerness, transsexuality, all of that, they're non-normative by de definition and very much more about becoming than about actuality, at least in my readings uh, of it. And I think there's a lot that it, it leaves on the table. And it's not just that, because I think it also, by becoming prescriptive and placing yourself in non-normative position, you're removing uh, the deeply human element of the whole thing, which is your personal sort of becoming an experience wherever you happen to be. And that includes those who may not be, you know, very far on whatever gradient, but exist in what would be called the normative straight hetero cis world. There's there are so many things inside of that about becoming and where we sit on it on a personal level that when we start talking about the prescriptive moral Mueller, it it becomes very confusing and difficult to really have that conversation on a personal level with anyone because at that point, I need to know what you're intending to be. What do you, what are you going to be? It's the old joke. What do you want to be when you grow up? And it's like, no, I want to just keep becoming. Yeah, and that that position is not something that is really spread uh, into the political movements, and it's something that is um, troubling for a lot of people. You know, just opening up spaces, and you know, it's it, it's like not enough. And like people would like, oh yeah, but like we need a project, we need something. You know, we need a destination, and that's the problem. It's to actually need the destination, I think. And the lawyers are not pointing towards the destination, but they're pointing into the possibilities of escaping um, the predetermined destination that has been imposed to us. Yeah, you're looking for the departure, not the arrival. Mm -hmm. I, I got to go, folks. I was just going to say at the end here that I, uh, I said in the chat as well, I don't trust like there's there's a way in which like the anti id Paul thing has become this weird like shibboleth for being part of certain like critical circles, and what I found in reality is that that often translates into people just literally refusing to engage with anything that isn't like academic Marxism. Now that's a bit of a straw man because I actually agree with the critique on a broad level. I think the issue is when it becomes a horizon or when it becomes a platform essentially because that was prescriptive. Sorry. When it becomes prescriptive itself, when it becomes its yeah. own molar structure, right? And when it be, and when it starts to, you know, and I, I said in the in the chat called against equality that caused so many <laughs> waves and issues in the queer community, but they were really always putting out really amazing stuff about the gay marriage movement and like the evolution of the gay liberation movement into these kinds of more molar demands and stuff. And I think we've lost. I, I think you muted yourself, Alyosha. Oh, sorry, I was just saying, I think you can end up in your kind of silo. Uh, it, it, you become Nick Land, essentially. That's the, that is the Nick Landization of theory, where if you go too hard on the thing of like, yeah, and this is why identity politics is bullshit, you basically end up being the, the person shouting on the street corner, refusing to like go to where the people are at. And I don't yeah. think it's about acquiescing, and I don't think it's about, you know, yes, you want to create new political subjects and all that stuff, but also like 
you, you got to look around and like, if literally everyone you associate with is white and male, then you probably need to change something. Now, yes. whether that this, this, this not, I agree. Yeah. With, I, I just want to specify, I agree with you, but you know, I'm within academia, within those circles. And that's where my criticism comes from. Yeah. I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's different. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not on the right. I'm not like saying that they're bad people or anything. I'm just saying from a theoretical and a representation point of view from, from within, they're, it's really troubling. There's the real stuff going in, and then the, you know there's the institutionalization of the categories that is uh, the byproduct. And I think that this byproduct is what takes a lot of the mainstream. And you know that's that's where people are being cut off. And again, I would say the big deal is to consistently be coming back to the idea of what are we actually, when we talk about identity politics, what is the important story? I, I read a wonderful article yesterday that almost was a meme in itself where Joe Biden is, it's it was quoted, Joe Biden looking at breaking new glass ceiling and the subtitle was appointing a female, a woman to the Department of Defense, Secretary of Defense. And I'm like, holy shit, that's literally the more female drone pilots meme but but happening uh and that's not like that's the painful part of identity politics uh the reality again comes back to and i and i and it's why i think my war personally is if i were to say against the molar the the reality is we're talking about what are everyone's individuals uh what are they becoming what are what are their stories how are they and all of us have those freedoms and that that growth and how do we allow our molecular drives to not be owned by these greater representations and that includes identity politics as a prescriptive thing that includes being straight cis hetero homo whatever as a prescriptive this is what it means to be that thing that's the bullshit of life you're go through your transitions be be wherever you are become be constantly becoming that's the that's to me the the thing that they're pushing out so hard here is uh, and they, they, I think, later get into it a lot more clearly in sort of the positive aspects of schizoanalysis. But the whole point they talk about is being destructive and destroying these molar representations and these investments that we have, and then taking people back through the many layers of investment that they have, the, in, the layers of intensity of those. I think and it's a, yes. yes, yes, on this, I think you're right. But like, it's, um, there's always the moment of history that we're talking about, you know, for example, um, the molar aggregates of the 60s and 70s were one thing. Now it's different. So basically, you know, becoming uh, queer, becoming women, becoming whatever else was a thing at the time. But now those categories have been reintegrated into the system. The minorities, the molecular has been um, rearticulated into the molar. For example, the struggles of the gay people in the 60s and 70s. Um, become became institutionalized, you know, gay marriage and all that, gay property, gay capitalism, you know, all this. And then the queer aspect actually uh, escaped from that into uh, new possibilities of being. But the, the queer aspects are being reintegrated in through the LGBT categories now. So it's always this movement of, you know, uh, taking the, 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 the molecular and placing it back into the molar. So, and then, you know, in 10 years, it's going to be different. The queer, the LGBT thing will be a thing of the past, something that needs to be uh, avoided into, um, 
in profit of certain uh, differentiations. So that's the same thing with like Marxism. You know, Marxism was a big thing. And now anarchism came in, Antifa came in, and, you know, politics of localities or whatever else. So like it's always, it's, there's always a line of fight escaping from those becomings that are becoming too structured. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, with the line of fight, or excuse me, line of flight, there's a Deleuzian slip for you. With the line of flight comes pulling a piece of the structure out of place, right? Like they, they give that quote about the general, I think it's a general, where yes, I realize I have to retreat, but I will be taking a weapon with me, won't I? If Bill Breck is trying to talk, we don't hear you. We see a little icon lighting up, but we don't hear you. No, not at the moment, sorry. Oh, you're fine. Just wanted to make sure you weren't trying to talk. Uh, we've had some issues with that. Like, for example, Alyosha muting himself uh, in the middle of sentences. I'm still not even sure how that worked. Um, all right. Uh, any other things we want to talk through? Yeah, I just want to say, and what Roger, you just said, that does remind me of like what Arto is getting at in terms of taking man back to the operating table and remaking him, right? This idea of cruelty as Arto is thinking about it, about which is effectively what I think you described in your dissert, in, in not even your dissertation, but your experience with defending your dissertation, where the whole remaking of man in that sense, um, right? It, there's a certain cruelty that you do to people who are looking for the representation, because now there's, you know, you've kind of cut off a sense of being for them in a sense, right? Like there's a there's a way in which there's a there's a blood there or a kind of a bloodshed to be our, to really be Artovian about it. But I think that kind of is a big part of the project for both Toulouse and Arto is that very, that very um, placement on the operating table and that, that removal of the, the representation. Yeah, but it's still, that's still a moment into the process because representation, the, 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 the effects as well, you know, so it's uh it's always it's always difficult to actually take a side or the other because I think we're always in between, and you know that's that's my old struggle in life is to actually you know try to understand processes outside of representation, but I never really succeed. So you know if anybody has a methodology or a way to do this, you know I'd <laughs> gladly hear it. But you know I I think my uh, I think this well, not my but like I think this general uh, will or um, desire to to do away with representation is it, like a failed project. See, it's tough though because, like, I think they're probably right when they say like desiring desire machines and that don't really they don't necessarily know any um, any representation, do they? So, one level, right? Like, it, it seems like there is a way in which this is happening without the representation right and like i wonder if our problem is almost like trying to represent that which and it almost becomes a tautology now that i'm thinking about it but it's trying to bring that into a representation um in and of itself yeah because i think that the the dominant way of talking of things and um working on the world is working through representations and uh, I think it's really difficult to get out of that. You know, social sciences are all about representation. So it's 
what do we what are we interested in the representation of people the epistemological aspect of questions and but you know to to actually try to go into the ontology of things like what is really happening what could be different you know it's it, it's really i think we lack the tools to actually uh work with this correctly it works at the philosophical level but when we try to bring them into the world it's it's more complicated than that you know it's like saying that uh for example i have i used to date an artist that was doing painting and basically she was just working with uh, technical objects and colors and you know engaging into the process so there was no intent like there was she was just like letting stuff emerge from the canvas so in our lives we should you know that would be uh the way to do it you know like let stuff emerge or set conditions so like new stuff can emerge but a part of that i don't really know how to uh work this whole process and uh not put intent or like you know planification or projects into it yeah i think that can be part of the trick too is when we because I'm reminded of that diagram again, where it's almost like I wonder if we almost stop ourselves by like whatever we're doing. There's almost a sense of like where reflection kind of like gives way to our reflexivity, where the very act of stopping to say, "Oh, wait a minute, have I imposed a telos?" Like I sometimes think there's a way in which we almost like this is what I mean. It's almost like the representation of of that which is not represented it comes to have a representation like it it's almost like we get in our own way with it because i think you're right i think a lot of art like when the the whatever the finished product is so to speak like the way that comes to be is not through like um not through like a traditional teleology where like the artist starts with the thing already in their head um i think very much like when they go to do it like there's a whole way in which whatever they did have in their head is, you know, it never, I don't think it ever ends up being what, what is produced. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to like page 321, you know, a true politics of psychiatry or anti-psychiatry, you know, there's a two movements there would consist therefore in the following praxis, one undoing all the retiratilization. I cannot say this in English that transform madness into mental illness. And second, liberating the schizoid movement of deterritorialization in all the flows in such way that this characteristic can no longer qualify a particular residue as a flow of madness, but affects just as well as the flow of labor and desire of production, knowledge, and creation in their most profound tendency. So I think that's the core aspect of the, their you know, prescription of praxis. I also really like the quote on 314. I think uh, that it's, it references this sort of the problem that Jack was talking about, right? Where you stop and say, like, wait, did I did I just make a tautology? Uh, um, they say, uh, how can one see? But how then can one see in this extreme dispersion, machines dispersed in every machine, nothing more than a pure fiction that must give way to reality defined as a lack with Oedipus and castration back at a gallop at the same time that one reduces the absence of a link to a signifier of absence charged with representing the absence with linking this absence itself and with moving us back and forth from one pole of displacement to the other. One falls back into the molar hole while claiming to unmask the real. 
I'm not really sure how to resolve the problem either, but it seems like something they're aware of. And I'm going to be curious as we go on reading to see what they have to say about that problem of, of falling back into the molar hole, as they put it. Yeah, and I think I think that's why like the, the diagram on 282, that second one with the schizophrenic process of deterritorialization, like a lot... Of, a lot of this, as I'm reading it, does seem to be in this process of like the delirium of the way you're moving, the way, and it's not even you per se, the way desiring production, right? Because this is a non-personal ontology in that way. Um, the way desiring production is moving through this delirium of re-territorialization, all of the reproduction or the representation, right? So all the body of the earth and that gets deterritorialized, and then there's the despotic body. Right, and it keeps going till it hits the body without organs, and it, it seems to be that this sense of like um, of breaking through the uh, of breaking through this delirium, or at least like uh, th this idea of becoming that we're talking about, especially if we want to talk about qua praxis, like a lot of this will seem to be based on how we interact with that body without organs. <laughs> I don't have much else to say. I'll just get. <laughs> going to second that uh, any last things because i think we're hitting the two hour mark and i want to uh i think we did a hell of a review here jesus um uh, we probably will not rejoin and get back together again tomorrow we may push uh to next week at this point um huh, this was great thank you guys all for coming uh we will be continuing next week with 4.4 which, uh, again, will be a long set of readings, uh, for sure. Um, I expect us to do another set of, basically, I think it's going to be four straight readings before we do another mega review like this. But it is a section literally about practice. It's about what we can do in the first positive task of schizoanalysis and how we can actually utilize schizoanalysis in uh, sort of our everyday lives and how we can deal with it. And I think it's a very useful, uh, wonderful thing. So thank all of you guys for joining. Uh, and I'm going to kick Craigbot out right now.